0: Welcome to the Leadership Launchpad Project, where purpose-driven leaders unite to change the game of life and business forever. Here are your hosts, Susan Hobson and Rob Kalvaroski.
1: Welcome to the Leadership Launchpad Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. On this week's episode, Anna Greenwald, the CEO of On the go joins the show. We talk about how happiness and well-being contribute to performance, and why employees demand Leadership 2.0 from their executives. Definitely check it out and definitely share it with other leaders in your community. We at Elite High Performance specialize in building high-impact leaders who turn their teams into happy high performers that achieve their goals. One of our clients, MIQ Digital, has leaned into Leadership 2.0 and has increased the well-being of their people, turned the great resignation into the great retention, and increased company financial performance. Some of their incredible results have been an increase of 35% year-over-year revenue Employee engagement of 83% versus a Gallup average in the United States of 34%. And during the Great Resignation in 2022, 41% of people are looking for a new job within the next 12 months, where MIQ reports only 18%, so less than half of average. And when the cost to replace someone can range anywhere from 30 to 400 percent of their annual compensation, that cost savings and business continuity from retention is a massive benefit to MIQ. Can you afford the risk of staying in Leadership 1.0 ways? Can you afford to let your competitors surpass you? If you can't, send me an email rob at elitehighperformance.com and we can jump on a call or you can go to elitehighperformance.com to learn more about how we can support your business and really take your business to the next level. Everybody, I really appreciate you listening. If you haven't yet, please hit subscribe to Leadership Launchpad Project on your favorite podcast platform and share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. Thank you so much. And here's the interview with Anna Greenwald. We are back. Welcome to the Leadership Launchpad Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski, and As always, the ying to my yang, Susan Hobson. Susan, how are you?
2: I'm still high flying after our first official elite dream team retreat last weekend. I know our podcast party people have heard about how much fun we had uh getting out there in the woods together to do a little team building, a little axe throwing, a little escape rooming. But yeah, I got to meet you live for the first time, buddy.
1: Right? And that's that's the thing. You don't actually get this question a lot, right? Is yeah. like, can you really build connection and trust and do it all remotely?
2: yeah you and sure
1: can <laughs> we proved it we, we definitely proved it right because we've known each other we've worked almost three years now yeah and it was literally just like <laughs> just picking up the the regular podcast day so that's it folks it is possible out there so you just got to lean in and be deliberate about the leadership actions that you take
2: mm-hmm. amen
1: and as always, we need to start the podcast off with a quote. And so I have one from the author, Sadie Andrea Zabala. And she says, I understood myself only after I destroyed myself. Ooh. And only in the process of fixing myself did I know who I really was. uh uh-huh. And that's where I want to go with folks is we often have ideas about who we are, who we need to be, who we should be, how we should feel all these, you know, live in the suburbs, white picket fence, two and a half kids and a golden retriever. And that might not be you. Uh And as you start (coughs) to unravel your conditioning, and rebuild you, your gifts, your sweet spot, your unique attributes, your values, that's when you learn who you are today. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And with that, we have a special guest with us, the CEO of On The Goga, Anna Greenwald joins us. Anna, how are you?
0: I'm so good. So happy to be here, guys. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you so much for joining us, Anna. And for everyone out there who wants to know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about you?
0: Yeah, for sure. So uh, my name is Anna. I'm the founder and CEO of On the Goga. So we are what I like to call an organizational well-being company. So we help organizations of all different shapes and sizes from 10-person nonprofits to Fortune 100 companies. Build healthier, more connected cultures remotely. So, it kind of goes to how we kicked this conversation off today. Um, so, yeah, we, we work with all different types of companies to build well being programs, uh, virtual experiences, leadership training, and development to really help people feel connected and build that future of work that we're all stepping into so much recently.
2: And I have to ask, Anna, what inspired you to go on this type of mission when the world needs it more than ever?
0: Yeah. So um, I have to say it was not uh, a product of the recent experiences that we've all been sharing. My story goes all the way back to uh, a hot yoga studio in West Philadelphia um, when I was 19 years old that I was forced to go to by uh, an ear, nose and throat doctor after getting a vocal cord injury. So if that wasn't the strangest start to this conversation, I don't know what it is. But yeah, uh, no, when I was before college, I mean, my whole life, I grew up wanting to be a musician. I studied classical voice, opera, I play piano, I play guitar. And um, when it came to where are you going to Go to school. What are you going to do? You know, Uh, I was like, well, uh, unfortunately, no one is knocking down my door asking me if I want to be the next Christina Aguilera. So I guess I have to figure out how this is going to happen. Um, Ended up going to school for uh, a degree in Philadelphia where I still uh, live, love this city so much. Um, And it was for music industry. So partially music production, music management, Uh, but also entrepreneurship, because when I was in school, the music industry was nothing, right? It was kind of like, oh, cool. You want to enter into this industry where no one wants to pay you for something that they find to be one of the most important things about their life. So, you know, cut to I'm partway through school, I'm recording my first EP, and then I woke up one morning and I couldn't talk. So I was like, what the heck is going on? I went to my ear, nose and throat doctor and she said, Hey, you've got pre vocal nodules, pre nodes. So, um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard the story of Julie Andrews, how she, you know, had nodes on her vocal cords, but that's essentially what was starting to happen. And so I couldn't speak. And I had to, uh, the quote you chose Rob is so just poignant when it comes to, I feel like my lived experience, I had to start completely over. I had to figure out like what am I going to do if the thing that I thought I was going to do for my entire life is no longer an option? Um, Part of my recovery plan was that my doctor prescribed me yoga. And my first reaction when she said, you should go to yoga was (laughs) absolutely not. (laughs) There's just no way. I mean, I hated exercise and uh, you know, at the time I thought I I'm not a hippie. So what's, what's, what's there for me? <laughs> um, I didn't want anyone coming anywhere near my chakras. That's all. That I knew. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, fortunately the yoga studio that I went to that hot yoga studio in West Philadelphia, I had the most incredible teacher who was really so fascinating and talked to me all about the science of mindfulness and, I will admit the first time I went to a class, the girl behind me did a headstand and I, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was my, I was like, okay, yeah. <laughs> great. yeah. Um, but it was fascinating because the the thought that I had was oh, I'm too old for that. Right. Like, Oh my God. I was 19 guys. Oh my goodness. I, but I really had that thought anyway, yeah. long story, not very short. I just became obsessed with this practice, the science behind why, putting yourself into a high plank pros and teaching yourself how to breathe changes your brain, your body, your experience of life. And I'm like, this should be universally accessible. Mm-hmm. So I started on the go, right? Literally 22 year old Anna in her brain yeah, yeah, yeah. driving around to all the oh different my gosh, places. I love this. And uh, corporate was one of the places that really was looking for support. This was back in about 2015, 2016. And you know, people would come to my class, they'd stay for an hour after and talk to me all about how they hated their jobs. And I was like, this is a problem. And none of the corporate wellness companies that I could find in my market research were actually designed to address the core emotional needs of employees and build cultures at work that were meaningful. And so I, you know, kind of bullheadedly said even though this is not what any investor wanted to talk about or anything like this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to build a corporate wellness pro- company that is built around making people happier and building more ethical workplaces. And when 2020 hit, we ended up going from on the go-go, vir- uh, you know, at your office to on the go-go virtual. And since then, we've just seen this incredible, honestly, so uplifting uptick and surge in interest in companies f- really understanding in a very short time frame that caring for our communities is a collective responsibility. And so that's what we do now. We help companies to do this in a way that makes employees happier and healthier. And our motto, our guiding principle is happy people do great things. So, I mean, this is really the future of work when it comes to how do we build successful, profitable, high-performing teams. So that's a long story, not short, as I like to say.
1: It's an incredible story. And I guess it it begs the question, how do we create happy employees?
0: Mm. Yeah, Yeah. well, I think I would take a step back and hearing that question and consider that, uh, you know, maybe it's not our job to create happiness for people. Um, it's our job as leaders to create environments where individuals can build their own happiness. Mm-hmm. I think that's a big mistake that I see a lot of really well-intentioned leaders make, right? It's like, how can we create a feeling in an employee How can we make someone happy, right? Mm -hmm. Disney World. (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, We begin all of our workshops this way. You know, we say, we're on the go-go. We believe happy people do great things. This does not mean that you should smile all the time and everything will be great, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This means that you deserve to learn research-backed tools that will help you to navigate the normal chaos of a hectic life. We provide tools directly to employees, to promote their emotional, social, physical, financial, environmental well-being. But we also work directly with leadership to build policies and systems that are supportive, inclusive, that make people feel like, not only do I belong here, but this community provides me with true benefits, right? Bringing the meaning back to that word that make my life better. Um, And in the society that we live in, I believe that corporate social responsibility means creating uh, ecosystems of financial community support where not only are you bringing good products into this world, but you're creating safe spaces for people to live joyful lives.
2: And I gotta ask, what are some of the biggest limitations that you see when you're working with these organizations to happiness to creating the conditions, right. For their people to actually be happy on the day-to-day going to work experience.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's such a great question. And I think when we try to address these questions on this super high level, it can become very confusing, very fast, right. Because mm. it's so multifactorial. So I like to reframe it yeah, in terms of think about what does it mean to have a happy family? Mm-hmm. When we think about that, we're like, whoa, oh my God. Okay. This is not such a simple question, right? Yeah. Yeah. In business, we're always looking for the silver bullet. Like, oh, if we just do enough yoga, <laughs> everything will be better, right? Yeah. No. This is a complicated system, right? Everything within your organization, just like any social structure, whether it's a family, whether it's a town, whether it's the world, right? You have how does information flow through an organization? What are the explicit standards that are set? What time are you supposed to come into the office? Do you have to be in the office? Are your cameras supposed to be on or off, right? In a meeting. But also what are the implicit Mm -hmm. standards that are set? Mm -hmm. Are those standards set across the organization or is there change and difference between different silos of the organization? is that intentional or is that unintentional right when you ask the question what are some of the limitations that we see i think that when we look at how are we going to help our clients we the first thing we want to do is uncover all of the places where things are not going well right mm-hmm. i love the phrase use data to guide not grade because No organization on the planet, including my own, is perfect because human beings aren't perfect. And so, first of all, it's accepting the fact that this is not a solution that you can put into place and will remain there forever. It's really an approach to how you solve all of your business questions, how you make your business strategies. The biggest thing is to take this approach on at the highest, most systemic level, right? It's really important to give resources to individuals, especially employees, right? But you can have all of the yoga classes you want. You can even have an unlimited paid time off policy. If your boss is a jerk and your Ugh. boss doesn't have emotional regulation, or your boss has been told that it's acceptable to criticize people publicly in a meeting, doesn't matter how good your wellness program is, right? People really need to be approaching this, leaders need to be approaching this from the bottom up, giving resources, and from the top down, setting standards, providing leadership training, and holding themselves publicly accountable for what systems do we have in place to make sure that our hiring processes are equitable, make sure that our leadership training is focused on helping leaders to understand how people's emotions factor into their work, how they factor into their happiness and their productivity. Um, so I, it, I, to sum it up, I would say, understand that flaws and imperfections are going to be part of a healthy structure and that it's much more about learning how to address these things and handle them from the leadership perspective in a meaningful and transparent way that makes all the difference
1: and how do you get people over that hump right cuz i've worked in a lot of industries that they look at metrics and they just set them all to green because they don't want to they don't want to really see the truth yeah. and like susan and i what we do mostly is a lot of mindset work which is really helping people get over their perfectionism or their willing or lack of willingness to be vulnerable and to truly be like, hey, there's a problem here. We need to do something about it. Like, how do you go about doing this?
0: Such a great question. I think that we can't force people over the hump, right? I think one of the most powerful tools for change is to honor and validate people's fear, right? Right. Someone is not covering their ears and going, la, 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 la. I can't hear it because they're in a good place, right? Leadership is really hard. Leaders get a really bad rap for a lot, a number of different reasons, some of which are valid. And leadership also means a good leader is holding a lot of risk, a lot of uncertainty, and is really at the forefront. The word leader comes from the root that means to go first, right? When you are the first person walking down the dark path or going into the basement right in the horror movie, that's really scary. And so when we work with leadership, I really try to walk into that room and see this person for who they are and try to understand what scares them. Is it that they're afraid That they're going to be perceived as a bad leader? Is it that they're afraid that, or they think they should always have the right answer, right? I loved what you said earlier, Rob, this idea of we should be doing this. We should be living in the house with a picket fence. One of my favorite phrases is if you should too much, you should all over yourself. And it's a huge mess, right? (laughs) So, but leaders as leaders, we do this all the time. I should have the right answer. I saw this so much with clients in terms of return to office plans, right? They were so afraid and they still are in many ways to tell their teams we don't know Mm -hmm. we don't know what the best answer is we don't know what the timeline is going to be but in the situations where leaders said that to their teams they said listen we don't have all the information yet we are trying to make the best decision for your for you all and for the business with the information that we have And this is how we're going about making the decision. We really hope that you trust us to make the best decision with the information that we have. And we may not get it perfect at first. What that does for employees is help them feel like, okay, that's honest. Employees don't always require the answer in order to move forward productively, right? So whenever I'm working with leaders, I try to help them first understand, look, I understand why you want to set all these fancy metrics for your program, right? But KPIs, key performance indicators, are indicators. They're not the success of the program. And if you get fixated on getting a certain indicator, you may actually sacrifice the health and happiness of your team. It's like if you decide I'm gonna get to this target weight and so all you eat is white rice, you're not gonna be healthier you'll achieve that target weight, you know? So it's about having compassion for the human beings. I like to say leaders and employees are just a funny word for humans, right? The human beings that are doing their best to live their lives and do their jobs. And when you can understand and validate their concerns and their fears and be their partner in in solving these problems, oftentimes that uh, breaks down the barrier enough to get to work.
2: I got to ask, I'm so curious what the last two years has done for your mission, right? Because pre-pandemic, I kind of feel like a lot of the resistance I would see working with leaders in the chair, right, in regards to me even daring to talk about, like, the importance of their state and how they feel at the front of the room as they're trying to lead their people. Um, Yeah, they, they just couldn't even imagine a world where happiness was a priority in a work context, right? Mm -hmm. Because we got so much to do. (laughs) But then we went through a world pandemic, right? And all of a sudden, our emotions were the priority in every business in terms of our people suffering and struggling to, to navigate all the disruption. So, What have the last two years done for this mission of yours in terms of making this case um, and trying to really bring these tools and resources to your leaders and their organizations so that they actually can start to step into that, right, Um, that emotional intelligence work?
0: Yeah, such a great question. And again, I think that I was really pleasantly surprised by the impact of the pandemic when it came to leadership stepping into this work. Mm -hmm. So I think it goes back to, you know, this idea that leaders are trying to get it right. And the way that the America, at least in America, the way that our workforce has developed over generations really began in in many ways, in the modern sense, in the industrial America, right? Mm -hmm. The assembly Mm -hmm. line, you show up, you put the widget in the digit and you go to the next thing. Right. And if, if you are unable to do that, then profit of the productivity will decrease and we got to get you out and put another human resource into the line. I mm-hmm. think that human resource, the fact that human resource is still the nomenclature that is used is insane to me. Right. Yeah. I mean, it just really speaks to where this comes from. Right. Yeah. People in your organizations are not machines. And in fact, the type of industry that most of us are in does not function in terms of productivity in the same way as an assembly line. Mm-hmm. But the people teaching business at all of these MBA programs, you know, they've been mm-hmm. learning the same stuff for a really long time and they so they have emerged after hard work after putting the effort in, genuine effort to learn what does it mean to be a great business leader? With a set of tools and information, that was very narrow. And so when you would ask them, hey, why don't we break out of what you learned at your Harvard MBA and Mm -hmm. consider that something else might work better? They're like, who are you? Yeah, right. Right? (laughs) Yeah. When the pandemic came, everything that they learned exploded. Mm -hmm. All of their operations, all of their systems. And when the infrastructure crumbled, they could, I believe, more clearly see that maybe these things I held to be truths about what was holding up our team, like the fact that we had people's butts in chairs. Mm -hmm. In fact, I was wrong. Now, I don't know how many leaders came out and said that, but I think that was the felt experience. And so they started to look around for what the answer was, because it became clear that the things that they were assigning, you know, the reward for productivity, in fact, were not what was making their businesses most productive. And so when that happened, we saw a huge increase in people reaching out to say, hey, mental health, <laughs> this is what I'm hearing all about. You know, The fact that operations exploded at the same time that mental health rose to the forefront of the conversation really well positioned this shift into caring about people as human beings within organizations and validating and putting to the forefront all of the research behind the fact that happy people do great things and happy again doesn't mean everything is great all the time Sean Aker, a Harvard researcher, he wrote The Happiness Advantage. He says, happiness isn't the belief that everything is great. Happiness mm-hmm. is the joy that you feel when you're striving towards your potential. And so mm-hmm. that's really what it comes back to, is how can organizations create these systems, these operational channels, the technology that you're using, the policies that you have, the way that meetings are conducted, that create a space where individuals can show up mm-hmm. and strive for their potential.
2: So whole damn selves. (laughs) This little portion of who they were told to believe that they had to be in the context of work, which is absolutely this whole pandemic has blown the roof off of. Right. Because we're looking at people's kids and dogs in the background of the zoom screen. Right. It's like, it's humanized us. It really has accelerated this. I see that for sure. Um, And then in terms of, The research that you just referenced, right? Behind how happy employees are actually more productive employees, right? More engaged. Like we know this because. Our whole tagline is creating happy high performers, Mm -hmm. right? Because that is how you maximize a human being's rate of growth sustainably to the rocking chair. But what is that science? What is that research? We got to hit our people out in our audience with that, you know, just to help make this case.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I would really point towards the happiness advantage as a starting point. This is an amazing book by Harvard researcher, Sean Aker, who Mm -hmm. just dives into The fact that genuinely satisfied employees, engaged employees are better at making sales. They are, uh, you lose less money through, you know, employee presenteeism, which, you know, but in care time, right? Um, So without rattling off like statistics uh, from the chair, I would say that book is a great starting point to understand how these things are tied to your business metrics. I think the other parts of the research that we really focus on at On the Goga are the latest research in positive and organizational psychology when it comes to core skill sets that show up in the workplace. So we have over a hundred different virtual experiences that teams can engage in where they can learn specific tools around things like boundary setting. So... Here's a great example. Understanding that um, when we set boundaries, right, a lot of the times we think either a boundary is up or it's down, right? It's on or it's off. It's good or it's bad. But what we learn from the research is that boundaries actually exist much more on a spectrum. So on one end of the spectrum, you have porous boundaries, right, seeping into or soaking up other people's emotions, time, etc. Right? We do it. Other people do it. We all have that experience. On the other end of the spectrum, is it healthy boundaries? On the other end of the spectrum is rigid boundaries, right? Walling ourselves off saying no to protect ourselves. Healthy boundaries are all about being able to honestly uh, share and accept our wants, needs, and desires, right? And so, taking research around the concept of boundary setting. There's an amazing body of research out of the University of Wisconsin. Um, Taking that information, bringing that to people in the workplace, explaining it to them, giving them this framework, and then talking in those sessions about how does this show up at work? What are the opportunities we have to set healthier boundaries? And the beauty of this is that what we also understand is that we don't have a work brain and a home brain, right? There's a great new show on Apple TV called Severance. Have you guys heard of it? No. Yes. <laughs> so I, I just think it's brilliant. It's the concept of the show is that you get a microchip implanted in your brain. And when you go into work, you forget everything about your life. And when you leave work, uh, you forget everything about work, right? Wow. So. Uh, it's, it's just a fascinating, you know, kind of uh, sci-fi television show, but that's like the extreme version. Yeah. We don't have that. No. Right. The same habits that we have been experiencing for our whole lives that started when we were children (laughs) that play out in our family relationships that play out in our friendships that play out in how we treat ourselves outside of the office. That's what's showing up inside of the office. And so helping organizations to teach their leaders, to teach their team members the science of how our brains work, the science of how we function together as social creatures, giving people this information, it's game changing, right? And we see that when people become more self-aware, it improves their dynamics with others because these are habits, their brain patterns that we have to learn. And that's why, you know, if we don't teach kids this in school, it's our duty to teach it to them as adults. And I've, I've taught mindfulness and these types of uh, emotional skills across all age groups, from third grade to, you know, seniors in leadership, right? At the end of the day, people experience these conversations as humans in the same way. And there's always something to learn from them. So um, if you're out there and you're like, what's the real research behind this? I really encourage you to uh, read The Happiness Advantage. That's a great place to start. But I mean, you also don't have to go any further than the Harvard Business Review to see article after article after article about the me- how meaningful employee engagement is, employee satisfaction, and if you're interested in starting to make an impact, I encourage you to dive into more of the research around how our human brain causes us to show up in social situations to ourselves and how that makes a huge difference in the work that we do.
1: It's it's uh, literally what we do.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And, and I gotta give a shout out to our teammate, MJ, Who, captain of fun yeah (laughs) the captain of fun she we were talking on a weekend about boundaries and she said that a lot of folks that we coach have negative connotations on boundaries Mm -hmm. and so we're looking or she said that she wants to call them scaffolding from (laughs) because they're supporting growth
0: yeah i love that i mean so one of the most interesting things that has come out of my uh, understanding of boundaries is the realization that we're so afraid of telling someone that a behavior is unacceptable. Mm -hmm. We hate that. Right? Like when I say unacceptable, what thoughts, what images come to your mind? Shame. Yeah. Shame. I've been a bad girl. Yeah. (laughs) Right? It's this. Uh, what, what, what's on your mind, Rob, when you think about unacceptable? Rejection. Yeah, right? Rejection. It feels like someone, usually and from a place of authority, has told you that you are wrong. It's someone trying to shape your behavior, someone trying to tell you how to be, someone trying to tell you that the way you are is incorrect.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: In reality, when we can be in honest communication about our boundaries, telling someone, hey, It's actually unacceptable for me to work on the weekends. There's nothing shameful about owning our wants, needs and desires. And so we've become so afraid Mm -hmm. of setting these boundaries because it makes us afraid that we're gonna show up and cause someone else the pain that we feel when we even think about the word unacceptable, right? So my perspective, I love the idea of just calling it scaffolding, like taking it out of the framework, I also love the idea of just exposure, right? Like you starting to use the word unacceptable. I I use this word all of the time. I just had a conversation with a client where something that we did for them didn't go well. And I said, you know what? Honestly, that's unacceptable. That was unacceptable. And we're going to fix this, right? Starting to own that word and be able to communicate to people, Hey, to me, this is unacceptable starts to show that we don't live in a world where certain things are good and certain things are bad. We live in a world where we're all walking around with our own ideas of what we want, what we need, and that's going to look different. And whenever we bump up against anyone, another human, an organization, a group of people that have a disagreement on what is acceptable, we're going to have conflict. But that doesn't mean one of us is wrong, right? I'm a hugger. And I know a lot of people that are not huggers. And if I walk into a room and go for a hug and they're like, Hey, actually like I'm not here for the hug. That doesn't mean I'm bad or wrong. It doesn't mean that they're bad or wrong. It just means that when we have different wants, needs, and desires, there's going to be a conflict. And so I'm all for starting to own that, starting to take away the fear that just because there's a conflict means that one person has to be wrong. Um, so that's, uh, boundaries are one of my favorite conversations to have, especially in the workplace. It's so interesting and multifactorial.
2: And especially with high achievers, Yeah, which is our our client. Our client, are, they come to us as high achievers. That's why our whole thing is turning them into happy high performers, right? Because the high achiever... Can't get to happiness with yeah. the striving, 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 striving known as surviving, right? Yeah. Um, stuck on that happiness when syndrome. It's funny, I remember when I graduated from Princeton, it was one of the first articles that um, I read in our alumni magazine. It was happiness when syndrome. They'd done all this research. Um, and yeah, it was basically polling a lot of us exiting graduates right and then like keeping up with us 5 10 15 20 25 years later and it was like looking at happiness like are you happy now you just graduated from princeton woohoo and everybody was like no we'll be happy when we get the job on wall street and we'll be happy when you know we get the white picket fence in connecticut with the golden retriever all that kind of thing And then they track that like 5, 10, 15, 20 years, it was always happiness when it was always the next goal, the next goal, the next goal that they believe they were hardwired to believe was finally going to get them to happiness. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, yeah, it's just so sad, right? Because like you're saying, it's a lot of how we're hardwired in school, right? To get to the next grade or the next school or the next job or the... And so, yeah, I have to ask all of this that we've been talking about in terms of the acceleration that the pandemic has created towards valuing the way that our people feel. Yes, even in the context of work, since that's accelerated so much, where do you think the future of work is going to be? And I got to ask, like how far away are we from actually being in a world where this is one of the top priorities of every business?
0: Yeah, well, it's such a great question and it's such a challenging question because there's so many things to be so hopeful and optimistic about. And we also have to own the realities of the world that we live in too, mm-hmm. right? One of the things that I think is not talked about enough is the fact that supply and demand drives our economy and that applies to the workforce. So I truly believe that left to its own volition without major black swan events, the reality is that people have woken up, millions of people have woken up, left their jobs because they've realized I don't have to work for a company that doesn't care. Mm -hmm. I don't have to. There are other companies out there that care. Mm -hmm. That is demand, right? Those employees are going to go out and search for employers that will create a landing pad for them where they actually feel good about their jobs, about what they're being given, where they're feeling respected. When there are enough of those companies right now, that's high value. I tell our companies all the time, if you can be one of those companies right now, you are winning and you are going to be light years ahead of your competitors that are still waiting to catch up, right? The more of those companies that come out because that's where the demand is, right? The harder and harder and harder it's going to be to maintain profitability in a business where you are not caring about your employees. So I believe that we have tipped, we have hit that inflection point. This is happening. The dominoes have fallen. Of course, we have to hold that reality with the fact that we live in a really turbulent world Mm -hmm. and things happen that are out of our control. And there are things happening all the time that put people's health and happiness at risk in a way that your employer is not going to be able to just snap their fingers and fix by changing your PTO policy. Right. right? Mm-hmm. So I believe that employers right now that are rejecting the idea that they need to have people first work cultures are like accounting firms in 1999 being like, we don't need your computer software. We've been doing it this way for a <laughs> hundred years. Right. Yeah. But
2: exactly.
0: they're going to become obsolete. And I think leaders are seeing that now. And they're, they're a little scared. They're a little freaked out. They're a little bit like, oh my God, I just spent my whole life trying not to be a beginner. And here I am back at the beginning. And I'm not sure what to do. So my best advice for leaders is this is happening. This wave is coming down and you can sink or swim. The most important thing you can do is be willing to learn be willing to step into your fear, be courageous and understand that you're going to have to go back a little bit to the phase where you're messing it up, where it's painful, where you don't get to kick back. Right. And that's okay. But going back to what you were saying, Susan, right. We have this idea of like, well, I'll just be happy when I'll just be happy when. And so the, the urge to just sit back where it feels comfortable is so strong especially if you've been putting the work in for years or decades to become a leader right but the other reality of our lives is that it's never a good time to be happy it's never a good time to relax it's just always an option an option it's always a choice and I think it's also important not to put the shame on ourselves when we're feeling like I can't be happy right now or I'm feeling so down, right? Yeah, life is hard, right? This is not something you should be doing. Let's not shit on ourselves about it, right? These are just opportunities that arise and letting ourselves believe that it's acceptable to to take a break and having compassion for ourselves when we get into a space where we think, where we truly believe it's not acceptable to take a break and looking around and saying, maybe that's not my fault, you know, and just that sense of self-compassion can go a long way in helping us touch in and tap into that sense of peace for a moment.
1: And the data backs that up. So there's a Gardner study that came out that I actually found yesterday and it says employees It's basically talking about how the pandemic has changed how employees feel. Mm -hmm. And so 65% of them say that the pandemic has shifted my attitude towards the value of aspects of work. Sorry, the value of aspects outside of work. Mm -hmm. And similarly, 65% say it's made me rethink the place that work should have in my life. Mm -hmm. And so that's what folks... Are really seeing is work is now different. Mm -hmm. And even 62% say that it's made them long for a bigger change in their lives. Mm -hmm. So that's where you're seeing great resignation. You're seeing people not wanting to go back to the office. You're seeing all these different things. Mm -hmm. And so the data backs it up get on board. Otherwise, the train's leaving. Well, the train's left the station. Yeah,
0: exactly. The train's gone. Yeah. And it's, you know, it goes back to this idea of, you know, the systems and organizations have been blown up over the last several years, two years, three years, whatever it has been. It feels like a wormhole of time, (laughs) but. Vortex. Yeah. But also the systems of our lives. I mean, how many times pre-pandemic did we ourselves think or hear people say i used to hear this all the time friends young friends right being like yeah well i don't know i just kind of got the job and now i'm here and this is this is just what it is like i kind of hate work i kind of hate the commute i kind of hate all this but like this this is it what else what else is really out there these train tracks were so deeply grooved in our minds right That when the pandemic happened and it exploded the train tracks, Mm -hmm. people started to walk out of the train tracks and Mm -hmm. walk out into the space and realize, whoa, so much of how I was living my life was based on assumptions and expectations. And when these things change, the world changes. And that is the wildest thing about the time that we live in. Like the world is changing. And I'm a millennial. I work with a lot of millennials. I work with a lot of Gen Z And our expectations of what life is about what the workplace is, it is different. Mm -hmm. And so... And, and it's even different for Gen Z than it is for millennials, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a great stand-up. Uh, I'm going to forget her name, but the comedian talks about being an elder millennial, right? <laughs> like, uh, I'm on the millennial advisory committee for the city of Philadelphia. It's a mayoral committee. And we talk all the time about, you know, we're invited into Philadelphia Youth Week. And we're like, are we youths? <laughs> you know, what does that really mean? But these human beings, mm-hmm. right? we have a different expectation. And so we're going to build things differently Mm -hmm. and we're, you're already seeing the demand Mm -hmm. making shifts to the supply. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I often talk about this in terms of economics with leadership because it's easy to understand. It's things that we all buy into, right. And believe in the, the piece that I try to help organizations and leaders understand is that Let's use the framework of impact investing, right? Impact investing is when you invest in something and you are expecting a financial return, but you've also identified new asset classes, right? Whether that's a cleaner environment or supporting women-owned businesses that are valuable to you, that you're not going to assign a short-term dollar value to, right? Let's use that framework when it comes to our teams, Because employees have new asset classes. There's research out there to suggest that employees would take a $5,000 pay cut if they could work remotely or work flexibly, right? Employees have new asset classes. So, the employers that understand that and provide and pay into those new asset classes using things other than money, those are the employers that are just gonna excel over the next few years.
2: Mm -hmm, Amen.
1: I love it. And Anna, we got to wrap up here. So for folks out there that want to learn more about you and about on the go-go, where can they find you?
0: Such a great question. So, um, if you liked this conversation, definitely, uh, Google why wellness sucks TEDx talk. That's my Ted talk on a little bit more about this conversation, but you can follow me on LinkedIn. I'm just slash Anna Greenwald. Um, On Instagram, I'm Anna Greenwald underscore or on the Goga, O-N-T-H-E-G-O-G-A. I'm not really on the Twitter, but, you know, I I think there's an account there as well for on the Goga, Um, but also just come to our website, www.onthegoga.com. We'd be happy to connect with you, hear more about you, what's going on with your team um, and just get involved in this conversation, because to me, these are the most exciting things about the work that we get to do is talking about and shaping the future of work.
1: I love it. And obviously for us, hit subscribe to Leadership Launchpad Project on your favorite podcast platform and share it with any leaders in your life. And if you're looking for any leadership development programs, one-on-one leadership, coaching, keynote, speaking, DEI, psych, safety, burnout, and more head on over to elitehighperformance.com for all of that. Now, Susan, is there anything you want to leave us with today?
2: I love it. I think we said it all sink or swim folks. It's so funny. And I was saying that to the big, at the beginning of the pandemic, to all my, my clients, I was like, okay, we have a choice because this is a tidal wave that's about to hit us, right? Like we can either bury our heads in the sand or we could start swimming. <laughs> right. And I just, I was trying to compel them to want to lean in and stay engaged and aware, right. In terms of what this is all going to mean for them emotionally so they could do that work. Um, and I was, The way I was leveraging that was getting them to imagine like that choice. What is that choice going to mean? Like, where are you going to be two years after this thing, three years after this thing, if you buried your head in the sand? And that's essentially what you're saying, right? Sink or swim like this, this wave has changed the game. So if we're not learning how to adapt our strokes, right, (laughs) when those currents are flowing differently, then yeah, I don't even know what that looks like for you. Yeah. A year, five years, 10 years out.
0: Uh, as as they said so beautifully in Game of Thrones, chaos is a ladder.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, this is amazing. Thank you,
0: Anna. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a real treat. Thank
1: you. Yes. And for me, Anna said it. It's never the right time to be happy. It's never the right time And we were even talking about on the weekend it's never the right time to have kids. It's never the right time to move. It's never the right time to buy that house. Mm -hmm. Or is it the right time? And has it always been the right time? (laughs) Yeah. And that's the perspective. And when Susan was talking about the Princeton study, people have default levels of happiness that they always gravitate towards. You win the lottery a year later, you're the same as you were before. And the way to change that default level is to change yourself. And that's the journey that we all need to go on as leaders. mm
2: mm-hmm.
1: Anna, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thanks again for having me. This is great.
1: Everyone, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you all next week.
2: Bye, everyone.